Hello, this is Dr. John Peebles. Thank you for joining me in this high-altitude conversation where we have the chance to talk to the decision-makers, the people at the top, the chairman and the chief executives who've made the decisions that affect our organisations and, indeed, often our very way of life. I hope that listening to them in their thoughts as they articulate problem and solution provides something to reflect on and perhaps utilise or model in your own management style or approach. These people are recognised as our top problem solvers, and the one feature they all have in common is recognised management success in organisations of substance. Our guest today started life in Lancaster, in the north of England, opening his corporate career with the high-profile London fashion house, Mary Quant. He moved through two of the world's leading fast-moving consumer goods concerns, Gillette and Procter & Gamble, working in Europe and the Middle East before becoming chief executive of Pepsi-Cola Middle East at 32 years of age. He was promoted to a similar role in Canada and made a distinct impression in the Cola Wars before coming to New Zealand in 1989 to head Lion Nathan, driving the brewer to a dominant position in New Zealand and Australia. From 1997 until 2014, our guest, as worldwide chief executive of global creative giant Saatchi & Saatchi, led the thinking in marketing, brand and communications. His acknowledged dominance as a leader in the sector saw him assume global roles and receive numerous honours from organisations, universities and academics. He was honoured also by his adopted country New Zealand, being made a companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit for services to business and the community. A director, author, speaker and business ambassador, he's known and followed by many in countries too numerous to mention. Often described as a colourful and entertaining speaker, he has a distinct frankness and a direct style that highlights key messages. Those messages focus around leadership and impact, about the here and now, and around building high-performance cultures. Indeed, one of the books he co-authored, Peak Performing Organisations, deals with the lessons to be learned from sports teams that have developed the habit of winning. Unlike many leadership gurus, whose approach is purely academic or based on one event or change. The pointers that come from our guest are from lessons learned in hand-to-hand -hand combat in multiple challenging environments that each represent a fascinating case study. Kevin Roberts, welcome to High Altitude and thank you for agreeing to join us and share your thoughts and time with us. Kevin, while there's been a lot written about your career and achievements, there's not been a lot that tells you your early childhood, growing up in the United Kingdom. Can you outline the early years, the family background, the youthful aspirations? I grew up in Lancaster, which at the time was a 40,000-person village northwest of, uh, of Lancashire. My dad was... Uh, my mum and dad both left school when they were 14. They came from large families, seven kids in each family. It was the time then. We lived in a very working-class area, council house. Um, my dad worked as a security guard in a mental hospital, which was... Uh, pretty much like the job I had at Saatchi and Saatchi for many years. <laughs> and, and my mum worked in a, in a shop. Uh, we had no money. Nobody had any money where we lived. Nobody had cars. Nobody had anything. Uh, nobody went to good schools. You, uh, it was kind of typical working class, northern industrial kind of upbringing. Luckily, uh, I could play sport, so I could play anything with a ball, right? Cricket, rugby, soccer, table tennis, tennis. And... I found learning to be incredibly exciting. I loved reading. In fact, I had seven library tickets. You know, I, had, I persuaded my mum and seven dad to give me them. I read a book a day from, from about the age of nine. And I read in Latin, I read in Greek, and even though I only understood 4% of it. Self-educated? Yeah, until 11. And then at primary school, I went to a, just a local primary school, and I found maths, English, learning completely absorbing and great fun and didn't drop a single mark till I was sort of the age of 11. I, you know, I got 100% for everything and it was just, I was voracious. And I was lucky enough, they made me captain of football, captain of cricket when I was nine and captaining 11-year-olds when you're nine is, is, is real fun and stimulating. It's yeah, it's challenging, you know, <laughs> but, but real fun. That I was lucky enough to pass the 11 plus. Nobody from my school had ever passed it. Nobody from the area I lived in had ever gone to a grammar school. We had a wonderful grammar school in Lancaster, still is, Lancaster Royal Grammar School. It's 800 years old, boys only, 1,000 boys, 
top 50 school for Oxbridge, gets 15 people there every year, has a great cricket team, great rugby team. And I was, I was put into the alpha stream where you do all your exams a year early. It's an accelerated learning thing, which I don't agree with because it sort of takes you out of your peer group and has you hanging around. I don't think it's a great thing, but it's a thing. And uh, luckily enough, they, they, they gave me leadership of the sports things too. And I had a, just a marvelous time. It was a bit rough because I used to wear a school uniform. We had no money to buy it. So it was all secondhand and four sizes too big. Every night when I walked home, the local kids would steal my books, steal my cap, which you had to wear, stupid, right? And give me a kicking until two years in, they got bored with it, you know what I mean? And um, and all went great, you know, and I, and, and I had some inspirational teachers, wonderful friends, who are still friends to this very day, a guy called Peter Sampson, who was my English teacher, who taught me all about language, taught me all about dreams, introduced me to all the great working-class poets and writers of the 60s who were all living up north at the time, you know, you know, the time of the Beatles and the time of, um, you know, um, Adrian Henry and Roger McGuff and David Story and, and all these great things. He used to give me the books and I could read them at night. And um, everything was going great. And then at 17, the school kicked me out, expelled me. So You must have done something fairly dramatic, did you? I didn't think so at the time, but the headmasters certainly... I mean, when I went home and explained, I just got thrown out. Uh, it was a culmination of, of, of sort of a number of things. They have a prefect system at the school and uh, where you the prefects administer discipline to the boys, sort of King's College style, and they dish out punishments. And I refused to be a prefect. And apparently I was the first one in 800 years' history that had refused this great honour. And I refused it on the basis of a good working-class socialist thing that said, you guys are paid here to teach and discipline the boys. I'm here to learn, and I'm not going to discipline my peer group. It just isn't my job and my responsibility. And I have no qualifications for doing it. I have no framework for assessing this stuff. So, no, I'm not going to do it. And they said, but you're captain of rugby and you're captain of cricket and you're very influential and you have to be a prefect. It's a great honour. And I said, no, I don't, I don't want to be. Then they, uh, we had a, a second fallout on the question of homework. Again, I took the socialistic view, which said, look, I come to school all day and I'm going to work really hard because I love it. But when I go home, I'm going to play football. I'm going to go out and I'm going to read and I'm going to go to movies and I'm going to go to art theatres. I'm not going to do homework. You've got me for eight hours. Make the most of it. So that's it. <laughs> and so I, wouldn't do, I didn't do any homework. So that went down really badly. And it frustrated them because I kept passing my exams, but it didn't... It went down really well with some of the maverick teachers, really poorly with the headmaster. And then there was a, an event. Um, uh, but fundamentally, the, and I'll tell you the event in a second, uh, the, uh, I went home and told my parents, look, I've just been thrown out of school. They'd never been to school, so they didn't really care, frankly. And they said, why? And I said, well, we... The headmaster and I have a personality problem. I have one and he doesn't. <laughs> and what happened was that um, I was going out with a girl, Barbara, at the time. She was the head girl of Lancaster Girls Grammar. And uh, she became pregnant. And it was only the second time we'd done it, so it was a little bit sort of unfair. And in those times at a boys-only school, I knew all about how frogs reproduced. I knew nothing about how <laughs> humans did it. Okay? So it was a pretty... Quick lesson. It was, really, a little bit late. And Barbara's school were terrific. And they said, well, Barbara, you're a great girl and you're doing really well and you're in your last year and we'll help you through all this. And Kevin's a good guy and it's terrific. My head, and, and my rugby teacher and cricket teacher thought the same thing. Headmaster said, well, you can't have the baby. He was a southerner. And uh, you can't have the baby and you can't be at school. It's ridiculous, so you'll have to leave the girl. And I said, mate, that's not how we do things up here. The great thing about this story then is is that I'm now a governor of the school 
and I'm the head of the R&M committee, and I select the headmaster. So we have no more Southerners. <laughs> it's a lovely story, isn't it? And you've been back to a school reunion. Lots of I go back all the time now. I'm on the board of governors, and, uh, and, and I'm on the honors board, and I'm one of the founding members of the Black Sheep Club. And there's two of us in the Black Sheep Club, a guy called Brian Ashton, who was also expelled, right. and who coached England in the 2007 Rugby World Cup. And to be a member of the uh, Black Sheep Club, you have to have been expelled, not suspended, and reached world-class fame in your profession. <laughs> so there's two <laughs> of us in the club. Honor. A bit of a backhander, but there a you great are, honor. But a, And now we're both on the honours board. Well, that's great. So it's very it? good. Well, yeah. at, the, at the time you left school, yeah. w- w- you tracked into Mary Quant. How did you get yeah. there? Complete fortune, right? You know, I mean, I spoke at the time schoolboy French and Spanish because I was doing that at advanced level. And I got a job locally at the only sort of big company there. Frankly, because I was the only person in Lancaster who spoke French or Spanish that wasn't a school teacher. And they had an international business. So I, at the age of 17, I had four jobs, right? I had four jobs because I had a baby to look after, right? And a wife. And I worked at Stories, this company in the daytime, frankly, dealing with international stuff, French, Belgian, Italian, Spanish stuff, without really knowing very much, but just by asking people, right? And then I had a job every night. I worked in a pub called the Lancastrian, a pound a night and all you could eat. And then I carried bricks at a building site on Sundays, and I played cricket for a little bit of boot money uh, sort of semi-professionally under the... Under the counter. Yeah, on the counter <laughs> on a Saturday. You know yes. how that works, yes. right? And so I had those four things. And then uh, <laughs> serendipitously, I met someone in a pub who said, we're looking for somebody who speaks French. And, you know, my name's Mary Quant, and would you come to London? And I rock up next morning... And, and Mary's at the forefront of everything in the 60s. And she said, I'm launching a cosmetic range into Europe. You know, get at it. Come and be an assistant. And I said, yeah, okay, great. I didn't know what that is. After three months, I said, listen, I've seen what the brand manager does. And I can do everything he's doing. I'll do it for half the price he's doing it for. And I'll work twice as hard. And she said, you're on. So half a half the price and, you know, 20 hours work a day. I stopped all my other jobs and worked for Mary and learned about being a manager, no clue, and about brands. My first four bosses were all women. So I learned about collaboration, creativity, connectivity, all these things that have become very avant-garde now. I learned about in the late 60s through having these creative fast-moving, very strong female role models as my direct bosses. So you were used to working in a creative environment. Yeah, from the get-go, having learned English, having done nothing but read and study poetry and was into this amazing, fast-moving... Our product life cycle, John, was six months. We were in... From creation to creation, six months? Boom. In and out, you know... Create it, launch it, and discontinue it. Six months, right? And we did things like makeup to make love in, great creative ideas, which was just waterproof mascara and and waterproof lipstick, but it didn't run when you kissed or you cried. We did the first makeup for men, 1968, before metrosexuals were even... (laughs) And all we did was put female moisturizer into a black package, right? But we called it makeup for men and... And it went so on. I learned a lot about marketing. Yeah. I went terrific. And t- how long were you with Quant before you went on to Pepsi? Then? I went three years at Quant. Then I went to Gillette. Right. And Gillette, I have done zero career planning, as, as you will recall, right? And the only career planning I had was when I took advice from you. And Gillette were very big in 95% of their business was male. Razors, shaving products, and so on. And they saw this explosion of female toiletries, cosmetics, and so on. And they said, we've got to get into the female toiletries business. Who's doing a great job? Well, I'm sitting on this explosive Mary Quant brand at the age of 21, frankly, just fueling it. I mean, I I got... Mary knew all the colors in advance because she was the fashion queen. She told us what they were going to be, and we just sort of made them. Saatchi was my agency, and they created magnificent advertising around it, 
And I just sort of, steering would be quite a romantic way of looking at it, navigated, nudged, or didn't get in the way of this juggernaut. There was an explosion going on by itself. Exactly right. Mm. There you go. And I happened Mm. to be not slowing it down. And Gillette, of course, look around the market and they go, wow, this brand's going great, guys. Who's the brand manager? Kevin Roberts. Let's go get him. And, and I'm, and, and they say, well, let's get into female toiletries. We want you to do it internationally. Have you been to the Middle East? No, I'd been to nowhere except France, actually. I'd never left except to play <laughs> rugby in France and been to France and Italy on business. And the guy said, well, you know, let, we, we want to test all this stuff in the Middle East. We don't want to test it in the UK or the US. Right, how does that guy say, so, yeah, fantastic, sort of wondering where the Middle East was. <laughs> and then they said, we want to start with shampoos, deodorants, all that. I said, yeah, okay, that sounds all right. Yeah, let's, let's go. And they, I don't know, they did ridiculous things, tripled my salary, gave me a Ford Granada. I couldn't drive, but they gave me this big <laughs> Ford Granada, which went into the family very nicely. And off we went. Then from Gillette two years, and uh, th- then I went to Procter and then to Pepsi. And then to Pepsi. Yeah. And then somewhere along the line, New Zealand came calling. Yeah. It was Lion. What did you see in it? I mean... Yeah. So it was uh, 1989. There was a knock on, on my door. It was Egon Zender at kind of 6 o'clock in the morning, you know, the, the search guys. And they had been bothering me because at the time I was the president and CEO of Pepsi-Cola Canada. And... Th- we had 15 people at my level in the Pepsi-Cola company. And uh, there were 14 Americans and me, 14 MBAs and me. <laughs> and I felt this isn't looking, yeah. You know, Promotional opportunity. No, it didn't, <laughs> you know, look at the odds here, right? There's a story going on. And I really wanted to run my own business. I wanted to run my own show. And, and I'd said that. And Pepsi said, well, you're, you know, you're terrific. And Roger Enrico's my boss said, you're going to do it. And I'm going, well. He said, okay, listen, I'll just to show you it, here's what we're going to do. You're now in Canada. We're going to send you to run Kentucky Fried Chicken in Louisville. Good grief. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was my response to it. Mm. And I went home and yeah, my wife said, mm, <laughs> Not really. Not really, yeah. <laughs> or words to that effect. Yeah, I understand. So I went back to Roger and said, look, I'm really flattered and, and, and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken, I'm, I'm sure it's a terrific, terrific brand and great product. And Louisville, mm. it's not really, you know, but I, but I appreciate the effort. And they said, okay, we'll come back to you. A couple of weeks later, you know what these big HR machines are like in PepsiCo. Right. Joe McCollum was yeah, there absolutely. right in the forefront of this. And they come back and said, okay. Pizza Hut, which, uh, yeah, Kansas, Kansas City. And I go, it's, 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 guys. Variation of the other. Yeah, it's not working, (laughs) right? You know, we don't want to go to, it's probably great if you're American, sort of not really for us. But anyway, thanks very much. We'll, We'll just keep plugging away. And keep plugging away we went. Econ Sender then just call up and they say, we want to talk to you about this thing in New Zealand. So I put the phone down after <laughs> laughing and going, it's like Kansas, it's like this. But then serendipitously, my sister, Tricia McEwen, lives here. She, you know, she was doing HR at, yes. at uh, Fletcher and all that stuff and telco- telecom. And Trisha, my sister had lived here for a while and she said, come on, you should come down. And I said, oh, well, you know, I can have a week here because they're going to fly me down or something. <laughs> so Egon Zender come up and they say, come on down. We're looking for a chief operating officer for the newly merged Lion and Nathan. It's a really big job, really great people. And I went, yeah, 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 yeah. I'll go down and see my sister anyway. So we rock off down here. And I met Doug Myers, Peter Cooper, Robin Congreve, Chris Mace, Jeff Ricketts, Alan Gibbs, well done Gordon names in corporate Tate. New Zealand, don't they? And it was like, I'm like, whoa, this is the A-team, man. Right. I mean, you can forget this corporate American. P- Gillette, Procter & Gamble, Pepsi-Cola, thank you very much. This is the Wild West. This is time for an adventure. Do we go beer with Lion? Do we go retail with Nathan? What do we do? Do we go huge and deep in owning pubs and hotels and own New Zealand? Or do we get into Australasia? Do we go to Asia? 
And Doug Myers is going, well, it's all to play for. You tell us. And, you know, Peter Cooper and, and uh, Alan Gibbs are going, nothing's impossible. We can do anything. <laughs> As they have. Yes, indeed. And, I'm, and, they, and they're going, so why don't you just come and run the business and join us in this adventure? And I went, man. And I was 39 years old and, and, and boom, off we came. And what an adventure. And it went quite well. You'd have walked into quite an interesting situation because it would have been messy when it came in, I suspect, was it? Well, you know where it came from. I mean, you were very close to the company and you were very close to these guys in those times. And this was the merging of two complete different cultures, Doug Myers and the bastion of the whole Myers family and these property developers, you know, the white shoe brigade of Chris, Jeff, Robin, with Gordon Tate sitting on there on top. Yes, I bringing, remember Gordon quite well. Right. An ex-admiral, uh, uh, wasn't uh, he? Absolutely. Yeah. And not very ex. <laughs> okay. Right. Uh, a wonderful, wonderful man uh, with highest integrity and standards and stuff. Douglas Myers, a champion, a lion, a hero of New Zealand, in, in my view, and a, a man of... Alan Gibbs, probably the most inventive... I mean, he is... The Zuckerberg of that generation, yes. right, just before his time. And with great diverse intellectual interests oh, as well. God, fantastic. I mean, I'm still very close to Alan. Obviously, Doug's passed. And then you see Pete Cooper and these guys, Chris and Robin, there, Jeff Ricketts. Yes. They are. Well, the corporate leaders or property leaders or whatever. So we had the decision to make, right? Where do we go? Do we go beverages? Do we go retail? I took the view that retail was not. You had to be in big countries to win in retail. So you had to be in the US, fundamentally, right. UK or Germany. And that having Woolworths and that having Decca was probably not transferable. But that brand skills and beverage skills, you know, you could go from Lion to Alan Bond, Coke, Pepsi, and those brand skills were more leverageable and transferable right. and you could get premiums for brands rather than from retail operations. Right. So that was, but that was a great strategic question that we had. And then the second big strategic question was at the time, Lion was very vertically integrated. It was all about exclusive distribution, owned the Owned its own pub, didn't it? Yes. And, and, and Doug and I said, you know, no, supermarkets are coming and we've got to embrace, relish and promote that change because that's going to build availability, build consumption, which means our whole skill set's got to move. We've got to become low cost, which wasn't the case before because you had tied distribution. And we've got to become incredibly innovative and competitive because there's going to be no barriers to entry anymore, physical. So it's all going to be about building talent that understands speed, agility, cost, innovation, and consumers right. all at once. So Michael Porter at the time at Harvard was talking about you've either got to be the lowest cost operator or you've got to be the most innovative. And our view of Douglas is and I is, yeah, he's, he's right, and we've got to be both. Right. So we better get started. But you had a wonderful team at the top, which is probably unusual in the sense of the board and the, and the ownership structure, and then it was left to build the team at the bottom to mirror that, wasn't it? Really? Yeah, I mean, the, the board meetings were the high, which they're not anymore. They were the highlight of my month because I got to sat with, sit with these because I was on the board, and I think if you're going to, run a company as a CEO or COO, you've got to be at the board table as a member. Otherwise, you're isolated or it's you and them. There's different agendas. You've got to be very tight. We had... I, I've just, you've done something on this, I think, on this board diversity stuff, and I've done that. So I don't think diversity is about race, and I don't think it's about gender, and I don't think it's about age. It's about diversity of thinking. Function and thinking and everything. There you are. So if you think about the board I had, in Alan Gibbs alone, you had like 10 normal board members. Right. Doug Myers' views were completely different to Jeff Ricketts, who were completely different to the admirals, who were totally different to Chris Macy's and Peter Cooper's. And they were all aired passionately, but I always felt I had their unconditional love and support. They all interviewed me. They all grilled me. We all went out socially. And... I could bring to them stuff they didn't have and they brought stuff to me 
that I didn't have. Mm. It was marvellous in my role. Right. What were the people like below? I mean, this man from Pepsi coming in uh, must have dragged in a bit of, uh, bit of opposition for a start. You know, um, hmm, it's a good question, right? So, so the, um, I didn't... You didn't notice it so much? I didn't pay attention to it right. because I didn't think it was important because I understood them. I, I thought, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't like this much either on the one hand. So you had the guys who thought, I feel threatened and, you know, boy, this is all going to change and I don't like change. Right. And I get that. Yep. You feel the guys who thought, wow, this is the time now, you know, boy, thank goodness. So I'm there gonna... was some to get off the bus and there was right. some to get on the bus. Right, so. and then there were the decorators who are the most dangerous who say they're on the bus but actually they're not. And they have a phrase to... called, this too will pass. Okay, this too <laughs> shall pass and we'll, you know, and you don't really know who they are. So they're, they're hard. But I never spent an awful lot of time for it. I really, truly believe we were on a mission from God. Yeah. I really felt I had terrific support and I knew what to do. Right, and I look around at New Zealand, and I thought this is this is all about talent. It's all about attitude. How do we, KSA knowledge, skills, attitude? We've got not enough knowledge of consumers and brands, so I have to build that. Our skills in competition are very low mm. because it's us and DB. Mm. That's not world class competition. And if we go to Australia, suddenly it's Foster's VB, Carlton, it's going to get a little hairier. And then if we go into Asia, it's going to get a little hairier. If we get into the cola business, which we did, Pepsi and Coke, it's going to get very hairy very fast, which is going to be very good for us because we're going to learn or, or, or die, right? right? So skills, we got to skill people up. And then the most important thing I had to change was attitude, KSA, knowledge, skills, attitude. Because the attitude in New Zealand then was, yeah, you know, we want to be best in class in New Zealand and we want to, we want to have nice duopolies and, and, and we want to be almost Canadian. You know, it's not whether you win or lose, but, you know, we've got a even keel, steady as she goes, incremental. And then you have Doug Myers going, that's no good. I want to be world class. You know, I want to be the best in the world. And then there's me on top saying, Doug, actually world class is not good enough. We've got to be world changing, right? And Peter Cooper's like, wow, yeah. And Alan Gibbs <laughs> is doing all this world changing stuff. So we go from best in class as a desire, attitudinally, to world class, to world changing. So we had to attack those three and you know, I only brought one guy in with me, yes. Joe McCollum. Yes, well, my he head was of world HR. World changing as well. There you go. Right, mm. you bring in a world changing talent guy. Right, you back him. We spent every night together, John, for two years. Yes. Every single night, talking, working, and and you know, there's this view, right? There's no I in team. I think that's absolute nonsense, right? Because you need in any team Bowden Barrett. Yes. You know, you can have Richie Moanga. It's fantastic. But Bowden Barrett, you need – I don't care how many good players you have, they never make up for one great one. One star. Right? And I said, we got to get stars into this place. Right. we got star brands like Steinlager, like Lion Red, like Pepsi. we got to get star players. So hence we looked for Kiwi talent, you know, so the likes of Kevin Kenrick, Kevin Stratful, Doug Mackay, Peter McClure. When we hired all these guys who are now leading businesses or have led them, they were stars in their métier. Right. But they were sort of hidden. Right. But, you know, you know it, don't you? You know them. And you can tell from the passion, can't yeah, you? Yeah, you, see it. you mm. feel it, right? Mm. You feel it. So we went for those stars. We backed the stars. And we gave them a framework, a performance framework, right, which was about, it's, this is all very interesting, but this is about 100-day plans. Forget annual budgets, forget three-year plans, forget all this stuff. We make our numbers every 100 days. Knock the 100 days off and look for the next There 100. you go, there you go, there you go. We do 10 things every 100 days, yep. right? Boom, simplicity, brutal simplicity, clear accountability. We moved to a RASCI system, you know, where... You're not bureaucratic. Someone's responsible for the project. Somebody approves it, support. And so we made real clarity, set the the purpose, the dream, the values, and then got the hell out of their way, really. 
Right. And some of them, I mean, particularly the youngsters, you had a gang of youngsters come through too, oh. didn't you? I mean, it, it was terrific because we were in the beer business and we are in the Pepsi business. I said to these guys, come on, this is the most fun you can have in New Zealand, apart from rugby, whilst keeping your clothes on. So come and join us because we're going to go to Australia and we're going to take on Carlton. And then we're going to go to China. So if you want to be part of that, you kids, and you want to learn from the best and we are the best, right? then come on, because we're going to give you accountability, responsibility, brand jobs as early as I was given them. Right. And everybody's going, yep, well, not everyone, but, you know, the ones you want, male and female. I mean, we got some top, top, because at those times, you know, we women were just sort of hungry on the brand side, right? Don't just go into research, just don't go into... But we are hungry to do, to achieve. So we were able to attract some real talent. And with the New Zealand thing on that basis, then you looked at Australia, of course, and I seem to remember Bond Brewing was about 23 cents a litre and you were about 11 cents a litre. And there was a pretty obvious opportunity, wasn't there? Which we took advantage of. (laughs) I seem to remember it quite well. And it went well, didn't it? Yeah. So how many years at Lion did you put in? So I was at Lion for, in those days, so I was there for seven. And at the end of seven, I was wiped out. I had done everything I could do. And it had moved. You know, there's three buckets of change, John, incremental, transformational, and disruptive, okay? And, And we need them all in business, and we need them all at different times, and we need them all in different parts of the business, right? In those days, I felt that we needed to disrupt much of New Zealand's management. We had to move it from management to leadership, frankly. Which was a disruptive kind of change. And we had to transform some stuff. And the incremental stuff didn't really play a role. Kaisen didn't we didn't need it at the time. As we went through that process, there was little need to disrupt where we got to, because we'd done it really. Transformational opportunities were less and less. And it was really about, okay, now it's about blocking tackling, focus, commitment, discipline, rigor. The boring. The stuff that is very important to a business. Right. But not... Not for somebody who wants to change something. Not for world-changing stuff. And and Doug and I and the board all talked about that. Doug was anxious to sell the company to Kieran because he was of the same mind as me. That He could see where it was going. We've done the transformation. We've done the disruption. This now needs heavy lifting and, you know... Huge capital. All right, and lots of capital, and I'm not really in this, says Doug, and the, you know, the Mace boys are not really in it, and I'm not really in it. We're all in it together, so let's get some good operators in. Joe went to ICI, as you know, because he was in for transformation, and let's sell it to the Japanese who will do Kaizen, continuous improvement, till the cows come home. Right. And a happy event for all shareholders and all employees. Mm. So we're... Where did Saatchi come on the map? I know there were a couple of things you were looking at at the time. Um, um, I think uh, the f- name Fletcher came up somewhere the other day and I seemed to think there was one opportunity there and there was a couple of others. And then you came and mentioned Saatchi to me. And yeah. It Saatchi. W- and you gave me some advice, which was <laughs> watch out, right, and get and negotiate a good contract because what was the advice you I think I used the expression that uh, advertising agencies change their chief executives like their underpants almost daily, so the only rule of the negotiation was to walk to the bank with a smile on your face. And I stayed there 20 years. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Which has a world to set record. Some sort of world record. A, it is a world record. Is yeah, it really? Twenty years as CEO of Saatchi, and I loved it. And there, and, and it was bizarre because you're right. I was offered um, a number of interesting opportunities. TV New Zealand said we'd like you to take over all our outside broadcasts for sport joint venture. We want you to run rugby. We want to contract that out, and, and you're just the guy to do that. Prime Minister at the time asked me to get involved with Fonterra and said, look, everybody knows you through beer, they know you throughout New Zealand and through rugby, and you should do something for your country now that you're a citizen and all this Jim Bolger and all this kind of... And you know how persuasive right. Bolger could be. Yes. Uh, Nike asked me if I would run rugby globally for them and set up headquarters in New Zealand and deliver the All Blacks. Okay. Which is a pretty interesting prospect, isn't it? And then Saatchi and Saatchi said, you know, the two brothers are leaving and we need a new CEO and, you know, you can either sell rugby boots or change the world through some creative ideas. 
<laughs> and, and put that way, there's only one alternative, isn't you know, there? And, you know, the dream of Saatchi was to be revered as a hothouse for world-changing creative ideas. Saatchi had been my agency since Mary Quant. They were Lion's biggest agency. I love them. Peter Cullinane from New Zealand was on the board and he was a prime mover in getting me involved. P&G is Saatchi's biggest account and I was eight years at P&G. So it was, and I loved it from the get-go. Of course, I didn't know anything about running an advertising agency. Um, and I was sort of anxious about that. But you knew a lot about creative and about strategy and about branding. And about people, yeah. right? Yeah. But I, and I, I thought, well, I should talk to some people. And so you know I talked to you. I also then thought, who's been in this position of going into an industry, a company they don't know anything about? And there's quite a few people. But I stumbled across General Norman Schwarzkopf, right? who ran the Gulf War uh, in 1990 for the Americans. And prior to that, I had never been to war. Now, it was a little stretch of the metaphor to think that advertising was like war. But in many cases, there are some similarities, right? So I call up Storm and Norman and I say, you mentioned you don't know me, but here's what I'm doing and here's this. And here's the problem I've got. He said, I'd love to meet you. Come down to my ranch in Colorado, measure of the man, and we'll chat about it. So I rock off down to Colorado to meet Storm and Norman, drink the worst beer I've ever had. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm not a big fan of American beer, right? So, and Miller is just an American beer. Well, now they've made it even worse with Miller Lite, which I thought was impossible <laughs> to make Miller Lite. Anyway, so we drink a few of these and we have some burgers. And I have this three hours with this charismatic leader just soaking up leadership stuff. The core thing he said to me as we were leaving, he said, listen, remember this. When given command, take charge and do what's right. You've been given command, off you go. And I held on to that, John, every inch of the way, you know. And I do think that when you do go into an industry, piece of advice, probably best to go in as a CEO. <laughs> <laughs> you can change things, can't you? There you go. And and you're not you're not blocked by by the past or your past or... And the board is initially, when they appoint you for the first 12 months, looking for you to do just that. And that's what they've told me, right? Transform it. So it was fantastic. We were £2 billion in debt. We were about to go broke. We had to transform. Wasn't that bad, was yeah, it? Yeah, it was bad. And, and the, 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 the uh, board, again, David Harrow, the main backer, was fantastic. So I did some things that were different. You know, we, uh, I didn't bring in any new people with me at all, not even Joe. I just said, okay, listen, I believe in all you guys because I've worked with you as a client for many years. The problem you guys have got is that your leadership got sidetracked and got, you know, obsessed with the stock market and making money. But you guys look pretty good to me and I always never fired you and always stayed with you. Your margins are less than 6%. They should be 15. This is not going to be difficult to get to 15. Believe me, I can do that. So... We're going to relaunch the company on the stock exchange at £1.10. I'm going to give you the chance to buy shares at 90 pence and I'm going to fund you into those shares, all of you, every employee, secretaries, assistants, drivers, everyone. You can pay up to 10% of your wages into stock and I'll loan you the money and you pay it back to me every month. Two conditions. One, you stay for three years. Two, you work very, very, very hard, long and smart. And two out of three won't cut it. Hard, long and smart. Two-thirds of the company came into that deal, 90p against pound ten, and I said to them, I will double the share price in three years. Because I knew I could double the margin. Right. You know what I mean? Yes. See, right? So I'll double the share price. Two years later... We sold the company, which we launched at £1.10, for £5. So everybody made fivefold their money. They would have created quite a bit of wealth in that. So fantastic. And it was really for secretaries to pay for their mortgage, to pay for their kids to go to college. The number of lives we changed through the shareholders funding that 20p difference. Obviously, I didn't fund it. The shareholders backed me. Right. And, of course, the shareholders are ecstatic because every one of them sold out at £5. 
Amazing. <laughs> a lot of money. Yes. So, but it was all done by, and I didn't change anyone in the company, John, for a year. No one. Not one person. I said, okay, for 12 months, here's what we're going to do. Here's our purpose, our purpose on a page, to be revered as a house for world-changing creative ideas. We're going to fill the world with love marks, which is this thing I've written all about, and you're all going to have the chance to perform. Here's what we believe. Here's our characters. At the end of 12 months, I'm going to make one load of changes, and it's going to be in or out, up or out, and that's what we did. And that worked well? Worked for us. I mean, five pounds is five pounds, right? Five pounds, five pounds. <laughs> uh, tell me, um, is there enough of that done? In the New Zealand market, you know, if you were a quadriplegic in a wheelchair with no brakes on the worm that sh tracks the shock, the stock price, you wouldn't run anywhere, would you, in New Zealand? Because it doesn't go up or down. I mean, it's... Uh... I mean, I was on the board of Spark, you know, because I really... Uh, admired Rod Dean and, and Teresa very much when it was telecom. And then, you know, we went through this tremendous change to make Spark, uh, you know, relevant to New Zealand, the chorus and the strategic thing, Simon Mooter, once right. again, Joe. And I was on the board there for six years. And uh, what Spark has done, I think, is the most fantastic story in New Zealand of moving from telecom bringing in this whole new marketing approach behind Spark, moving to this whole agile. I mean, these guys are so far ahead. But even then, when you look at the share price movement, man, it's a lot of work. It is. For, a for, lot of work. Yeah. Because the companies in New Zealand, the ah. share price doesn't move as it is. Is it the dividends we give out or is it the, that we're too focused on giving dividends rather than creating wealth? I, on, I, yeah, I honestly think it's size, small, opportunity, right. and, uh, you know, the, the, the top talent in New Zealand now, I'm happy I mean, I just spoke to 300 people at an unfiltered live thing at, uh, last week. And we are really driving entrepreneurship, innovation, you know, all the initiatives that the universities are taking. Just look at my food bag that I chair, you know, a company that didn't exist, Cecilia James Robinson, Nadia Carlos and Teresa. We, we've built, you know, a, a company that's in the hundreds of millions of dollars, right? And it's... It's come from nowhere in five years. That would never have happened in New Zealand of yours. So I think our corporate sector's disintegrated, share markets not active, there's not really... It's not a strong market, is nah, it? No, not really. This is about, for me, uh, innovation, the startup economy, collaboration, partnerships, place to our strengths. Yes, because one of the first American companies I remember working with in, in uh, Los Angeles... 21 cents a share the man bought it for and when he sold out it was $821 US and you know, he created a huge amount of wealth. He didn't give any distributed dis dividends. He said if you wanted some money, sell a few shares. Yeah. Uh, that there was his go. line to the people. And I think that's solid. But we don't invest for that reason, do we? No, I we mean, don't. that's not their investment profile. So where does New Zealand go with, with these things at the moment? I mean, if you, had to, if you could change the, the look of corporate New Zealand, if you got at the stock exchange and said, let's change it, what would you do to it? If you had your, you know, you could wave your magic wand and say, let's change the philosophy about how some of these companies are run. And just take, say, our biggest company, Fonterra, 17 billion turnover. Yeah. Um, you know, I've given that sort of zero thought be, because I don't, I, I don't think New Zealand is a place for big corporates and I don't think that's our edge. Yeah. I think our edge is creativity. And small niche. Absolutely. Because yeah. it is interesting. I mean, the 17 billion turnover in Fonterra, we think it's huge. It's 2% of the world's dairy production. You have to ask yourself, if that dropped off the perch, would we be missed? And, and the answer is the price might go up slightly, but we may not be missed. Right. Um, so therefore, if, you know, one of our clients in New York is 650 billion US turnover. So therefore, it's quite small, really, in, in comparative terms. Oh. And we don't realise that. We tend to think of ourselves as having scale, and we don't really have scale, do we? And, and I, th I don't think scale is important in today's world, quite frankly. I think but the you have niche to... product areas? Exactly right. I think you have to... We've got to win in the areas of connectivity, collaboration, creativity, and Kiwis are good at all those three things. Yeah. We are now massively connected, you know, through a technology point of view. We're terrific at technology. We are really adapters, aren't we? We really are. Fast, early, and we keep going, right? right. We're very collaborative. We're, you know... None of our people are sort of deep specialists, right? They're used to collaborating across 
horizontals. Which actually makes them attractive on an international market. Oh, as such, we loved having Kiwis because they could do everything with everybody. Instead of being deep and narrow, they were broad and pretty committed, right? So, and they would work hard. Yeah, so it's very good because you can't make it easily in New Zealand. If you don't have a work ethic here, you can't make it. No. Now, to come back to the younger people, because you've trained a lot of them, and I think yeah. I made some comment to you about a young man with Ferrari and a lecture on lost opportunity at your house one night. Do you remember that at all? Yeah, sure. This is a really young kid. I, I met him at Avondale College where I was doing work with a inspirational principal called Phil Raffles. And this kid was one of the good kids, right? Underprivileged, working class, real bright. He's now a teacher. And uh, he came around to my house one night and I had a bunch of six or eight of these kids and I was talking to them a little bit about what happens after, you know, you're 18, what, what choices, how do you make them, what do you think about? And I had a Ferrari at the time, big red Ferrari, right? And uh, he said, oh, man, that Ferrari's fantastic. And I said, okay, here, here's the keys. Go drive it. And he didn't, right? <laughs> and, 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 he, and, and next day he came around to the house and he said, you know, I should have done that, so I'm here to take the drive. And I said, hey, you're too late. That was yesterday. <laughs> you, you got it. And he's told the story quite a lot, right? How, and I said, there's no time for regret. You've got to fail fast, learn fast, fix fast. So you failed. You've learned to say yes. Now buy a Ferrari. What, are the universities doing a good job with their younger people today? Is the stuff they should be focusing on that's a bit... So I do some teaching at Auckland Uni and I teach the MBA program in, uh, in, in Lancaster. And I, I think our schools do a great job of getting kids prepared to pass exams. Right. Right. But not to survive in the real life? I mean, I think it's, you know, I think our unis are pretty good, right? You, you got to sort of, 17, you'll pass your exams, you'll have learned some disciplines, learned some frameworks, got some good knowledge, okay? You haven't really got, any skills you've probably got a decent attitude because the the discipline levels are pretty good you know and you have to look after each other and care go to uni it's three years of life experience right learning to make decisions stay out of jail do the right thing right. make choices and i think that's good and then for the next eight or nine years honestly john i think everybody's going to travel get new experiences and they're not going to settle into this career and security and pensions and they're not going to buy things. They don't want to buy anything. They don't have a 30-year horizon no. like we used to have. No way, no way. They're, they're going to get new experiences. They're going to connect with people. They're going to try stuff. They're going to go from three months in a job, six months in a job, 12 months in a job. So the employment uh, things record's going to look patchy compared it to... It is, and I think you're going to see terrific scores on on partial working. And I mean, I think the whole market's going to ultimately go freelance. Right. Right, and service, right? Freelance yeah. and service. So... If you were looking at someone, a youngster today, yeah. saying, hey, where do you go if you want to hit a corporate or you want to do your own thing? Yeah. What would you be, would you be recommending anything, any particular way to go? Uh, yeah, figure out when you're at your best, unlevel the playing field and go follow your heart, not your head. Right. Right. <laughs> and there's certain principles that you're advocating in your leadership consulting at the moment. Absolutely though, right. And you're lecturing on those sort of things. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the one I mentioned uh, earlier on was uh, J.C. Brown's one, which was just uh, the leadership, uh, he said, insanity in the appropriate direction, which yeah. is about the sheer passion for the goal. But there's other things to it, isn't there? I think, I mean, I think the, my interest is leadership, not management, right? So we talked about man, management's really important. Management's about getting things but done. But you can do that. Right, so let's get that done, because if you can't do that, you're out of business, right? right. But it's not going to make the difference. Leadership makes the difference. Right. Because in management, we all, you know, we've all got total quality. We've all got Kaizen. We've all got a project management system. We've all been drunkard and damned and stoned, right? We got all that. So that's a survival strategy. But leaders don't get things done. They make things happen. Right. Right. So it's the difference between getting things done, making things happen. And if you look at John Key, he made things happen. Right. Bill English probably is more of a get things done. He would have been a great number two guy. Terrific. To get things done. Yep. And they were, right? They were a great duo. Terrific. And it was like Gordon Brown, Tony Blair. Yes. Right? But, you know, we worked on Gordon Brown's election campaign. It's tough. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yes. he's a get things uh, done, not make things happen guy. So... Coming back to I mean, All Blacks, you obviously uh, with the, with the book and 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 the work peak performing, you've got pretty immersed in the 
What about our sports teams today? Because we seem to be in a bit of disarray, don't we, in one or two areas if we look at hockey and netball and other things that have come into We're in extreme array yeah. on <laughs> New Zealand rugby. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> very good. Flags, and, right? and, I mean, that somehow is the, it's the epitome of a winning culture, isn't right. it? Right, absolutely. And then you look at the others below and you say, why don't they get it? Yeah, Right. What do they need to get? Yeah, because they've got the raw material. I mean, we've got the talent. We've got the athletes. If you look at netball, if you look at hockey, if you look at soccer, you look at basketball, you look at the raw material that comes out of New Zealand schools, male and female. Man, we, we can compete, we can handle a ball, and we can play in a team, right? And we'll train, and we're free. So it's a cultural thing at the top, right? The All Blacks culture is really... You know, it's all about ABC, ambition, belief, courage, ABCs, ambition, belief, courage. It's about freedom within a framework. Go for the gap. It's about trust your mate. It's about no dickheads, right? The, I mean, if you read Legacy, which I wrote a lot in, in this book, Legacy, it's all outlined there. You know, there are no secrets to the All Blacks. It's just about doing it. Right. Right. And it's hard work. I mean, you see Michael Checker, who's, who's got a terribly difficult job, Mr. Angry, because he's doing the best he can and he's structured it and he's trained it and he's rehearsed it and he's practiced it and 40 points later... It falls apart on right? it, doesn't it? <laughs> and it all looks right. right. I mean, and it, it all looks right, but what are we doing? We, our guys have got the freedom, the freedom to fail and they trust their mates, right? They just know. Yes. And that's a cultural thing that New Zealanders do very well. So why it's not in these other sporting organisations... Hmm. It's obviously a talent shortage at the top, right? Attracting the right talent. Maybe they don't pay enough salaries. Maybe they don't have enough recognition. Maybe they don't, you know, inspire the right talent to join them. I don't know. I mean, people are queuing up to get involved in New Zealand rugby union at the youth level. They want to be in the digital group. They want to be in the fan experience. Because Steve Chu and these guys, they're sort of more managers, right? But underneath them, they've created this culture of exploration and freedom. And you've got that in the team. So what's next for Kevin Roberts? Where do you go from here? Um, so I'm, I'm in a... I have, you know, my personal purpose is to make happy choices. Right. And, and my dream is to inspire everyone I touch to be the best they can be, which is why I'm doing this. I hope some people will be inspired by what I've learned, you know, and doing now. So, so my role is to try and do things like this where I can inspire people. I, I'm living in the UK, right. the US and New Zealand. And right. sharing it quite equally, I take it out. Yeah, it's just by random, John, random, you know. Here I, I chair my food bag. I'm working very closely with Jake Miller on his unfiltered uh, adventure. Right. I'm doing a lot of work. 23-year-old CEO, it's, it's, it's <laughs> wonderful, right? And he's such an optimistic, bright, nothing is impossible kind of guy. He's a delight, right? And Rob Fife's with me on that little adventure right. too. So we're learning a lot from these young kids and their whole attitude around starting stuff up. You know, it's, it's amazing. So I Leadership, marketing, you know, I have a company, Red Rose Consulting, which we set up in 1995. John Kerwin was employee number one. Right. And uh, spending a lot of time on, on that, um, working with big international clients and stuff. It's fun. Thank you very much indeed, Kevin Robson. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, John. Thank you for joining me and my guest in this high-altitude conversation. If you enjoyed the show... Please share this with your C-suite colleagues and rate the show on iTunes if you will. In the meantime, go well. <laughs> <laughs>